Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, the first Bible reading is from Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations and uh, of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. The second reading is from Deuteronomy 9 verse 1 to 6. Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of this, these nations, the Lord, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And the last Bible reading is from Revelation um, Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice he judges and wages war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of god the armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen white and clean Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, good morning, I'm Simon. Uh, nice to see you. I don't know if you were thinking... Um, 
after that Old Testament reading, well, at least the New Testament reading is going to be a little bit more nice. And then you were three thinking, oh, can we just go back to Deuteronomy 9? That would be better. Um, so do that, would you? Could you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 as we um, continue during, uh, doing our little journey through the book of Deuteronomy in our series now, Choose Life. It would be good to, if you have your Bible in your hand or on your device or a, you know, a, a paper copy because we're going to be doing a bit of Bible flicking today. So that would be a good, a good thing to have in your hot little hands. So I am going to start, as I tend to do, with sort of a, a, a question um, or something to talk with your neighbour about. Um, And so here it is. Um, Religion is poisonous. Religion is poisonous. Um, Turn to the person next to you and get in quick. Say, what do you reckon? Do you reckon religion is poisonous? Um, Have a quick chat. I'll give you like 60 seconds. Talk about that. Religion is poison. Go. 60 seconds. Okay. Let's come back together. Maybe that question will make sense as we get into today's passage. Um, Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, yeah, Father, for speaking to us. Thank you that you are not a God who is silent, but that you have spoken. Spoken um, a word and creation came into being. Father, you've spoken through uh, your prophets. You've spoken through your son, the Lord Jesus. You've spoken through the apostles and the, the scriptures we have before us. We pray, Lord, that by the same spirit that inspired the writing of all of your word, that you would speak to us this morning, we pray. Lord, thank you for um, the fact we live in a country that um, enables us to rest and encourages us to rest. And so we thank you, Father, for this long weekend. Uh, We pray for our brothers and sisters who are traveling. Um, We pray for mercies upon them, that we would see them again soon. Uh, May they uh, have great refreshment wherever they are. And Lord, for us who are here this morning, refresh us as we think about your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've said every week, um, for the past six weeks at least, that Deuteronomy uh, is a collection of talks, Bible talks if you want to call it, sermons given by Moses to the people of Israel on the edge of the promised land where he reiterates to God's people just before they go in the law that they'd been given earlier at Mount Sinai. That's why the book is called Second Law, Deuteronomos, Second Law. And Moses preaches his heart out and he says, just over there is the promised land. He's begging the people of God, this new generation, to live according to God's word. Now, within months, right, of these Bible talks that Moses gives, Israel will be in the physical promised land. So it's vital for Moses to remind them what God's purposes for them are and how things may go well for them when they're in the land, that recurring phrase through the book of Deuteronomy. Soon they will have the land promised to Abraham centuries earlier. And even though we are not Israel, we're not on the cusp of the promised land. This passage, I believe, this section of God's word, has important truths to teach us here today about the core of the gospel, about the sinfulness of humanity, about the judgment of God, and about the mercy of God that's held open to all people. But first... 
it's important to acknowledge that there is great sensitivity in the West over religious violence, and we can't avoid it in this text or section. Um, After September 11, 2001, people would recognize that image, which we remembered uh, just recently, 20 years since that event, we've become incredibly anxious rightly so, about connections between religion and war. And the new atheists are in fact open about the fact that 9-11 galvanised them to write their books, to go on their preaching tours, to establish debates and establish their movement because in their minds, religion poisons everything. Before 9-11, religion was just a stupid fairy tale. After 9-11, it was a nightmare that we all need to be woken up from. That's how they view it. And it's a very easy step, right, for new atheists or atheists in general. It's a much safer one as well to lay the blame for religious violence at the feet of Christians as opposed to Islam. And so the result was that heaps of the writings that flowed out of this time, out of 9-11, by the new atheists point to these great symbols of biblical and church violence, right? So the Northern Ireland conflict, uh, the Spanish Inquisition, and the Crusades, and so on and so forth. These, These symbols of what religion inevitably results in, according to the new atheists. Now, of course, defenders of religion were quite right to reply and say to the atheists, hey look, violence done by religion pales in comparison to violence perpetrated by non-religious movements. I mean, as many people were killed in the nine months of the French Revolution as the entire 30-year conflict of Northern Ireland, three and a half thousand people. More people died in one week of Stalin's atheistic project as were killed in the entire 350-year Spanish Inquisition. Which at least proves that the problem isn't religion or irreligion, it's the human heart. No way, no way, no way, reply the atheists. There's something intrinsic in religion, organised religion, that leads to monopolistic behaviour, that leads to violence and subjugation. And their proof, very often, in their writings is the conquest of Canaan. Proof of what religion ultimately does. Israel dispossessed the people of Canaan and took it as their promised land and this therefore is the paradigm for what religion inevitably does. And we know, don't we, that there is no avoiding the story. It's a huge theme throughout the Old Testament. It's the entire narrative of the book of Joshua and it gets sustained treatment in Deuteronomy 7, 8 and 9 and then sort of repeatedly throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Here it is in black and white, Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's on the screen. Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites! 
You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? Goes on, but be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord promised you. Richard Dawkins calls this ethnic cleansing specifically referring to our text and the conquest of Canaan. He says, The ethnic cleansing begun in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. Is, Is Israel xenophobic? Israel is a xenophobic bully with a God delusion. Or is it? Well, today, I want to offer us, I've got five points. If you're a note taker, I've got five points. Five points. And they're not like five points each with six subpoints underneath each one, all right? Five points. Um, I want to offer a few things about what the war um, against Canaan with Israel was not. I then want to suggest what it actually is. And then I want to suggest, fifthly, what that means for us, Christ and the conquest, what it means for Christians today as we read the Bible. So firstly, if you're a note taker, here's number one. This is not the action of a bully. This is not the action of a bully. Israel, God's people, were about as far from being a bully nation as you can possibly imagine in the ancient context. I know it's easy to think of Israel you know, throwing its superior weight around against the poor, defenseless kind of Canaanites. And I suspect that the modern-day Israel-Palestinian conflict kind of feeds our impression of this story. Because let's face it, modern Israel is a little bit of a bully towards the Palestinians. I say that as a supporter of Israel. I'm glad that post-World War II Jews have a place to live but they do treat Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims in quite disproportionate ways. Just want to, I'll leave it at that. Ancient Israel, right? Ancient Israel was basically a shepherd culture. They had little military capability. They had hardly any military experience, unlike modern Israel. And this point is stressed in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Have a look with it. If you have your Bible open, here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Verse 2. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and you've heard it said. Who can stand up against the Anakites? Hence the emphasis then in verse 3 about God's power. It's a point that's actually kind of emphasized in the book immediately before Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, which describes the months and the years before Moses gave these speeches. You might know, right, in the book of Numbers, uh, the people of God send out some spies to go in and search out and see how good the land is. What happens when they come back? They're terrified, utterly terrified. Come back with me to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. I've got cheat notes in my Bible, by the way, today. Bright pink, beautiful cheat notes. Um, Numbers 13. This is kind of the backstory to our passage. Numbers 13, verse 13. Um, Yeah, 31, sorry. Numbers 13, 31. 
But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. Verse goes on, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked to say the same to them. Verse four, chapter 14, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we'd died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let them us fall by the sword? Apologies for my dramatic reading. <laughs> my point is that Israel wasn't a bully. They were a bunch of scaredy cats with no expectation they could possibly match the military might, technology and experience of Canaan. This is not how nations usually describe themselves in their national histories. It's one of the most puzzling things about reading the Old Testament is that Israel is just so down on itself. This is not the actions of a bully. And secondly, this has not got anything to do with race. Nothing to do with race. To describe this as ethnic cleansing is facile. Israel is probably the least ethnophobic nation I know of in the ancient world. Repeatedly, the Bible speaks about how Israel is to be a blessing to the whole world. In fact, the founding promise given to Abraham centuries before Moses said that a big part of Israel's formation and their calling was to bless the world. So Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country, from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And brothers and sisters, here's the climax. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. They're not an ethnophobic nation. The book of Joshua which comes after the book of Deuteronomy, which narrates the conquest of Canaan, the months and years that follow our text we're looking at, emphasizes this point in quite a dramatic way. And I really want you to zero in on what the narrator of the book of Joshua, which narrates the destruction of Canaan that Moses is describing here in chapter nine of Deuteronomy, the way the narrator subverts the idea that this has anything to do with race. Does anyone know what is the first story of an encounter of Israel and Canaan in the book of Joshua? Anyone know? Rahab, Rahab, little mumble from behind the mask from Sam. There you go. You get the lucky door prize. There you go. Um, Rahab, it's Rahab. Rahab. I mean, Rahab is a Canaanite in Jericho. Oh, more than that, a Canaanite in Jericho and a sex worker. Spies from Israel go out and they find her. What on earth the spies were doing in the home of a sex worker is a question lots of commentators ask, right? But they discover that this Canaanite prostitute has become a follower, a worshiper of the living God, of Yahweh. And she and her whole household are saved. Here's the thing. It's the first story recorded in the book of Joshua recounting an interaction between Israel and Canaan. What the heck is it doing there? 
I th- if this is about ethnicity, what on earth is a Canaanite woman being presented as a worshipper of Yahweh right at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan doing there? It's there, friends, to remind us that this has nothing to do with race. It is there to remind us that God wishes to have mercy on Canaan. What other explanation is there for this being the first story? And just in case you didn't get the point, you keep reading Joshua, and the second story has, guess what? The same point, ah, just for the slow people in the room, like me. This, and this story is an astonishing piece of national history. You know the story, right? Israel is all lined up to take Jericho, and Joshua has some quiet time, which is probably a good thing for any general to do before he goes out to battle. And he meets an angel who is the commander of the armies of the Lord. And listen to what happens. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. And verse 13. Joshua 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Verse 14, neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. And when someone falls face down in the Bible to the ground in reverence without being told to get back up, you know they're in the presence of someone great and holy and amazing. He was in the presence of the commander of the armies of the Lord. And the commander of the armies of the Lord says, I'm neither for Israel or neither for the Canaanites. Not about favorites. As far as I'm aware, right, this story is unique in ancient literature in that it accounts to the kind of total kind of overturning or repudiation of the whole idea of ethnic conflict. It overturns a typical narrative, right, of a tribal deity um, favoring his tribe over other tribes. The story is there in Joshua to overturn that whole narrative. There are no favorites in this story and there are certainly no ethnic cleansing. What nation comes up with a story that at the very beginning of its conquest who says, the divine is not for us? This is not the action of a bully. This is not about race. It's also not, thirdly, about moral superiority. Point three. This is perhaps the main point of Deuteronomy chapter nine, actually. God's people are never, 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 never to think they've been given the land because they're the good guys. Never. I don't know if you know this, but in Hebrew narration, in Hebrew storytelling, the way you amp something up is not by using kind of overblown adjectives like we do in English. What do you do? You just repeat it again and again. And again, I don't know as the Bible was read, as easy was reading, did you sort of chuckle when you kind of keep seeing the same line come up again? I often do. Uh, have a look with me. Deuteronomy chapter 9, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought, us, brought me here to take possession of this land because of my 
righteousness. No, verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land. Or verse 6, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Repetition. Israel received three amazing gifts from God. Can you think of what they were? Rescue from Egypt, salvation from Egypt, the gift of the law, and the promised land. They're all gifts. Nothing to do with their deserving. The problem that this passage warns against is that as time passes, God's people can begin to imagine that they were actually given the land because, well, we're pretty good. And frankly, we Christians, right, can feel the same. Yeah, sure, when you become a Christian, right, this is me, like you just utterly overwhelmed by the amazing grace of God. You know the depths of your sin. You know where you're heading without the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you know that Jesus has taken your place on the cross. He stepped in through faith in him. You're free and forgiven. And then you go on in the Christian life and the Spirit starts changing you, making you a bit more like Jesus. And then you can easily begin, like I can at times, to think that, well, maybe it's because of my righteousness. Maybe I'm just particularly useful to God. Maybe that's why he chose me. No. The text says that Israel has absolutely no moral claim on God. They are never to imagine otherwise. And so like you and like me and like Israel, we should never stop singing Amazing Grace. The whole thing, I just like the first verse and the last verse, that's all I can remember, but the whole thing... Because from beginning to end, it's grace. Again, I don't know any national history, ancient or modern, that makes this point about itself repeatedly. The Romans said this about the Greeks. The Greeks made the point about the Persians. But what culture says, this is nothing to do with how good or moral or upright or clever we are. In fact, we're a stiff-necked people, which basically means stubborn, insolent, uncooperative. This is for me, right, a really strong indicator that this is not a human text that we're reading. This is not a text to design, or not designed to, to bolster Israel's manifest destiny. This is a divine text that speaks the truth even to the possessors of the promises. You're not righteous and deserving, Israel. What national history says? You're a stiff-necked people. A divine national history says that. Well, these are not the actions of a bully. Nothing to do with race or xenophobia. Nothing to do with moral superiority. What is it about? Fourthly, it's about God's judgment. The conquest is all about God's judgment. The biblical text says that this war was entirely to do with God's just sentence on Canaan. Again, Hebrew narration tends never to use like, you know, hyperbolic adjectives or to stack up the adjectives. It's not their style. They simply repeat stuff. So have a look at verses four and five of chapter nine. Verse four makes it clear what the reason for the conquest is. It is on the account of the wickedness, verse four says, of these nations, that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. 
And then in verse 5, in the middle, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You get the point? God intends to use the Israelites as an instrument of his judgment on a culture that had become more wicked than God was willing to put up with. A culture we know was full of injustice, full of oppression. A culture that had its central plank of its religion, child sacrifice. Now it's easy to be a little skeptical at this point, right? And say, oh, here you go, you're reeling out the old wickedness of the Canaanites theme again. Just, a, and in, you know, just invented as a moral justification for taking the land. It's easy to imagine a modern Western person saying that. But here's the thing. That is anachronistic to the extreme. It's too Western. and Not ancient Near Eastern enough. Because here's the thing, right? In the ancient Near East, in the time in which this is written and happened, you didn't need any moral pretext or precedent to take another person's land in the ancient world, right? That's what made nations great. A nation just goes, I'm going to take the Assyrians. Let's go. Like, didn't need to, you know, they might have been wonderfully lovely people. They probably weren't. But, you know, let's just do that for fun on a Saturday. Like, that's what they did. They'd swoop in and plunder people and their land. Read Babylonian history, read Greek history, read Roman history, it's the norm. You don't need any justification, just take them. And yet here it is in our text. The Canaanites are wicked and will be expelled. Now there's a really interesting backstory to all of this, by the way. I don't know if you remember when Abraham, um, centuries earlier, was given a glimpse of the land that God's people would take. And God said, you know, he's standing there, you know, not right there, but you know, he's like said to Abraham, that's the land you're going to take. In several hundred years, that'll be your land. And you'll take it when the sin of that land is kind of reached its greatness. And, and here's the text. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And verse 13. Verse 13, Genesis chapter 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there, Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites, another word for um, the Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. Implication? It would not have been just to conquer the land of the Canaanites in the year 1800 BC, the time of Abraham. But by the time of Moses and Joshua, the sin of the Canaanites had reached such a fullness that judgment had to come. I've often been asked at various things that I've spoken at or, or just in conversations with people, you know, like why didn't God step in and overthrow the Nazi regime? Um, why didn't God step in and, and kill those Tasmanian death squads who years ago wiped out all the indigenous people in Tasmania? 
Where was God when Pol Pot slaughtered a quarter of the population of his country? They're good questions. I reply, there was a moment in history where God did exactly that to a culture exactly like that. God sanctioned a war using his own undeserving people to bring down his sentence on a people whose wickedness had reached its climax. Now if God had condemned every single wicked nation, we wouldn't be having this sermon this morning. But if God never displayed his judgment in history, we might think that God wasn't really serious about justice and judgment. And all those future promises we have in the Bible that one day God will bring about perfect justice, God will make all things new, is just simply pie in the sky when you die. God gave a limited, concrete, and entirely just historical marker that his justice will come. A marker that would echo through the ages as a sign of the reality of the judgment of God. In other words, God did to the Canaanites what we wished he'd done on the killing fields, what we wished he'd done at Auschwitz. He did it to show that he is serious and so that we are here today to talk about it. Now there, I get it, there are many troubling questions that arise And I think the most troubling is this. Maybe you're even thinking about it as you listen today. What about the innocent? What about the women and the children? Not that women are always innocent, right? But you you get my point. Was God really wishing to see the innocent swept away with the guilty? That doesn't sit well with us, right? What we know of God. But here's, here's one thing that helps me sleep at night. I want you to ponder it. Here's one thing that helps me sleep at night. Here's one thing that helps me then get up the next day and follow and love the God of the Old Testament. Here it is, the Rahab story. The Rahab story tells me that God wants to show mercy. It's the first story, and I believe it's the first story in the conquest story as a paradigm to tell us what happened to many such families. We don't hear about other families. The rest of the book is about judgment and conquest on Canaan. But the first story sets up, I think, so that in the reader's mind, we have this impression that God will be doing what he did with Rahab and her family with many other unnamed families, unwritten families. I think we we hit Rahab right at the beginning such that we would never forget the Rahab story as we read the conquest. Rahab and her household. That helps me. But I want to end um, with what we as Christians can learn from this part of Deuteronomy. My fifth point, Christ and the conquest. One thing is perfectly clear. Christians can never look at this text and find in it justification for war. Christians look at the Old Testament, right, through the prism of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the cover of the Pink Floyd album. There you go. Um, This is what we've been talking about, right? Next slide, please. One, beautiful, there you go. Um, 
in fulfilling the law, right? Jesus refracts its demands. So the Old Testament teaching, right, is like a light on the left coming in and hitting the prism. Remember, I don't do physics very well, right? So I'm not going to talk about all the physics, but light comes in. The Old Testament teaching is like a light crashes into the prism, the prism being the the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then out the other side of the prism, well, light does amazing things, right? Jesus refracts the incoming beam in all kinds of ways. So some of the things that come in from the Old Testament remain the same. We've talked about this before. The commandment against adultery, the commandment against murder, same in the New Testament, right? Some things are intensified. We've worked about this before. So the command to love your neighbor on the Old Testament side, refracted through the life, death, and resurrection and return of Jesus becomes what? Love your enemy enemy love your enemy and some things are refracted beyond recognition so circumcision gone food laws gone you know animal sacrifice gone like it's so good refracted in Jesus Christ and one of the things that is refracted beyond recognition, friends, in the teaching of the Lord Jesus and the New Testament is the whole notion of temporal holy war as judgment on wickedness. Gone. Gone. I wish we had more time to explore these passages, but the tortillas wait for no one, right? But, but when Jesus says, right, do not judge or you too will be judged, he's talking about the same logic here. Luke 9, I love Luke 9, the disciples, I'd be like the disciples, listen to this, so the the disciples, right, um, hear that people have rejected the Lord Jesus in a town, and they do a good old New Old Testament thing, right, hey Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on these people so they're destroyed and smote, what does Jesus go, he'll do that after lunch, no, Jesus rebukes them. That sentiment of enacting the judgment of God in real time and space in this world is to be rebuked by Jesus. And Paul in Romans, he says this, Romans 12, do not take revenge, my friends, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. I know I've said this before during this series, but this is not a modern conjuring trick of you know, early Christians invented so we could just pick and choose which bits of the Bible we kind of want to read and follow. It isn't. It's the way Jesus taught us to read the Old Testament. More than that, it's what the Old Testament said would happen to itself. One day, you'll read the Old Testament through the lens of a new covenant, a new basis of relating with God. And actually, on this whole issue of justice being sought and dealt with in this place, real time and space now, read the book of Amos, read the book of Joel, and you'll see that the Old Testament itself says that God has pressed pause on judgment like that. The Old Testament promises that we wait for the full judgment of God to come on the day of the Lord. We know the Lord's judgment, says Israel. Oh, heck, they do. But God has pressed pause, waiting now for the day of the Lord. Christians, we can never validly use the conquest of Canaan for justifying violence and war. So how does the New Testament interpret the conquest of Canaan? 
the armies of heaven. Well, it casts this idea of conquest as an historical marker of future judgment, an historical marker of future judgment to come, final judgment. And in Revelation chapter 19, our New Testament reading, we have conquest language, war, holy war language. And Jesus, astonishingly, is portrayed not as Joshua, he is portrayed as the commander of the army of the Lord. Um, here it is, um, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, we're dealing with apocalyptic language, but Revelation 19 verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What the Old Testament says of Israel's role in a limited geographical sense, the New Testament says is Jesus' role on an, an international global scale. He treads the wine press over the judgment of God. And more, verse 14, I think is casting Jesus as the mysterious commander of the armies of the Lord that we read off in Joshua because the armies are following him. God has pressed the pause button on judgment, but there is a judgment coming, and Jesus is the Lord of that judgment, a judgment of which the conquest of Canaan was an historical marker. And I wouldn't be teaching God's word faithfully this morning if I didn't ask you to seriously ponder the terrifying justice of God that is coming upon our sin, your sin, and call you to throw yourselves on the wonderful mercy of God, which he is always ready to hold out to Rahab's like you and me. And even in the furious apocalyptic judgment that Revelation 19 holds out, did you notice the reference to mercy that is on offer? Did you see it? Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Jesus is almighty. Jesus, his eyes are ablaze. Jesus has crown upon crown upon crown on his head. He is utterly awesome and yet he rides with a robe dipped in in blood. In the imagery of the book of Revelation, this is not the blood of vanquished foes, of people he's slain. This is the blood that he shed for the salvation of everyone. You just, you just track through the book of Revelation to see what it has to say about Jesus and his blood. It's extraordinary. Chapter 1. To him who loves us, 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and every language and every people and from Canaan and from Australia. Jesus' blood. Perhaps in the midst of the most frightening scene of judgment in the Bible, you cannot miss the offer of mercy that comes through trusting in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we cannot read the book of Joshua with its terrible account of judgment without hearing the story of Rahab and God's extraordinary mercy to her and her household. As we close, I hope I can convey this closing analogy helpfully. Um, About 10 years ago, 2011, there was a, I don't know if you remember this, a terrible tsunami in Japan. I'm following a massive earthquake. Um, 40 metre high waves, um, massive devastation, sort of up to 10 kilometres inland. Um, About 20,000 people lost their lives. It's devastating. Um, One thing I never knew up until recently, um, when someone shared an article with me on the topic, is that in the hills dotted along the coastline of Japan, are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stone markers, there you go, that look a little like that, just dotted all along the coastline of Japan. Um, they are, they're ancient warnings, right, that people have left there that basically say, don't build below this marker um, because of you know, historically remembered tsunamis and the devastation they've done. Uh, the stone in Aniyoshi reads, high dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build any homes below this point. One in Kesanuma reads, quote, Please be prepared for unexpected tsunamis. Choose life over your possessions and valuables. Wow. A scholar of these historical markers, because there's a scholar for everything, right? Um, Yotara Hatamura said, People had this crucial knowledge of the markers, but were busy with their lives and jobs, and many forgot. Now, please don't mishear me this morning. My point is not about tsunamis and the judgment of God. My point is about the importance of historical markers, warnings that must be heeded. The conquest of Canaan, here in Deuteronomy 7 to 11, narrated in Joshua is an historical marker, an almighty historical marker, a monument in history warning that the judgment of God is not just a theological idea, but that it is actually a reality. We're not meant to read Passages like this and put God in the dock and ourselves on the bench and accuse Israel of ethnic cleansing or God of injustice. We had to read this passage, heed its warning and flee to God for mercy and safety. You know, the people of Aniyoshi heeded their historical marker. They never built below it. 
and all of them were saved. Brothers and sisters, let us look to Canaan and heed it. More importantly, let's look to Jesus, the judge with his robe dipped in his blood. Throw ourselves on him and in him find mercy, hope and life. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that your word records for us um, truth. Father, sometimes what we encounter in your word is difficult for us to hear. But Father, we thank you for recording it for us that we might know how to live well for you. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Uh, who has gone before us, uh, taken the punishment that we deserved on that old wooden cross, so that we here today who trust in the Lord Jesus uh, will be safe and secure on that great and awful day when the Lord Jesus returns. Father, help us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus and in him find mercy. And Father, help us to live lives today in a way that reflects our certain future, a future with you forever. We're in a place where there'll be no sin. Help us, Lord, to live as lights in this world, certain of the next. Father, thank you for the warning this morning. May we, by your, in the power of your spirit, heed it and again throw ourselves afresh on the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.